Well, good morning again, and what a great time of singing and praising and worshiping of the Lord through song, and we respond to His, His works, His ways, what He's done for us. And I was struck, just kind of one of those random thoughts, you know, as you're singing and praising the Lord, I, w- I was just struck by the fact that you realize that for, for 24 hours, thank you, for 24 hours, the Lord gets to hear corporate praise from His people, right? Because, you know, I'm thinking about here, here in Oz, you know, we're praising the Lord as a local body, and then as the earth rotates, we all go to bed, and then the Lord gets to hear corporate praise on the other side of the world. So for 24 hours straight, the Lord gets to hear corporate praise from each local body of believers around the, around the world. What a great thought. As we're praising and as we go to bed, other people are waking up and praising the Lord. And so it just struck me as we were singing that. That's uh, just interesting. It would be interesting to see that perspective or, or get that perspective when we're in heaven. So well, what we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, we're going to be continuing our, uh, our movement, our, our teaching time, our preaching time through the book of Colossians. And you've had a couple weeks to hear some great preaching from fellow elders, Steve and Peter, and we're returning to chapter 3. Now, when we come to chapter 3, we, we were starting in chapter 3, we've been going through in chapter 3, the, the beginnings of Paul's practical teaching. Now, he, he's addressed the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Jesus Christ in his combating of the false teacher's teachings. He's talking about the dangers of legalism and mysticism and asceticism in regards to their teachings, and specifically in chapter 2. Well, in chapter 3, he begins by addressing uh, these believers and, and how they should live in light of what Christ has done for them. Right? In verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, If you have been raised up with Christ... And then the rest of the chapter says, all right, well, if you've been raised up with Christ, now what? Now how should you live? It begins by verses 1 through 4 and talking about our affections, where our heart is to lie and what we're to strive to love. Our hearts, our affections need to be set on the things above. Then he says our mindset needs to be set on the things above and not on the things of this world. And then from 5 through 11, he talks about what happens when we set our minds on the things of the world. When we, when we do not kill the impulses of the remaining flesh. The, kill the impulses and, and put those things away when they come up and they rear their ugly heads in our hearts. And if we don't kill those impulses, when it comes to sexual sins, we kill that, that very beginning covetousness, greed, or a, a very beginning impulse, it, it moves on to evil desire and impurity and immorality, and, and it becomes those things in our life. So it's not about just stopping doing something, the action. It's about dealing with the impulse in the heart. And the same thing, Paul gives another example about anger and about social sins and how we treat each other and how that all begins with the anger, the impulse in our hearts. And then it moves out to slander and malice and wrath and abusive speech. Right? So when someone acts a certain way, and when you act a certain sinful way, it all began with the impulse in your heart. And so Paul talks about how we need to, to kill it, to mortify that impulse and cast it aside at the very beginning. And then we have the ability and the power to do so because we, have a new, we are a new creation in Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit that empowers us, that gives us strength to do those things. And so that that brings us to verses 10 and 11 where Paul says we're we're being renewed to a true knowledge of the image of the one who created us. In other words, we're being conformed, we're being renewed to the image of Jesus Christ. And as part of that renewal, there's an individual renewal, but there's a corporate renewal. And that's where you have verse 11. And that, that, this is the bridge from what we talked about last time to what we're going to be talking about today. But that renewal is a new identity. Right? There's no distinctions for us any longer in Christ. There's no longer any Aussie, any American, any Indian. 
from a cultural standpoint. There's no longer any religious distinctions between Jew and Gentile, right? There's no longer any, any uh, gender distinctions between male and female. We're all united in one body in Jesus Christ, right? That's our identity, okay? So this new identity and this new life, it calls for a new way of living, a new way of treating others based on how Christ has dealt with us, right? And so in in order to have victory over these fleshly desires and impulses, we must have our mindset and our affections set on Christ. And in order to have victory and have a, a proper fellowship between others, we have to have our mindset and our affections set on Christ. Paul describes these heavenly affections or this heavenly mindset in Philippians 4.8. He says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or worthy of praise, think on these things. Right? So that's the mindset that we are to have. And so when we think about our relationships within the body of Christ, our new position in Christ affects those relationships, right? In God's eyes, there's really only two types of people in this world. John says this in 1 John 3.10, there's children of God and there's the children of the devil, right? So there's only two types of relationships. And so we have a new identity as a child of God, right? And so that identity should affect the way we treat each other. And this is what Paul's going to be talking about today. Now, I read an article recently about young college students in the United States. And it was an interesting article. It was talking about how lacking they were in basic skills. In fact, a lot of university students uh, in the United States, a lot of universities have started offering classes that teach basic skills. They call these uh, adulting classes. And there are t- classes that teach how to, how to change a tire, right? how to balance a checkbook or budgeting or what credit is or how to handle stress. And they call these classes adulting 101 classes because in the United States, any basic level university class is called a, a 101 class. An English 101 class is basic English, basic grammar. So adulting 101 is, is what it means to be an adult, because these kids have, have gone through their lives, these young adults have gone through their classes and they've gone through their young adulthood and haven't been taught the basic skills necessary to survive in this world. Well, as I looked at this section and as I thought about what to title this particular section of Scripture, I basically titled it Body Life 101. So this is Paul's basics for living out our life as believers in the body of Christ. Now let's go ahead and look at the text. We're going to start in verse 12 and we'll go through verse 17 of chapter 3 of Colossians. So, to those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should do. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed y'all were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, in all wisdom and teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness to your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And so we're going to be looking at four points this morning. Four points. We're going to be looking at Paul's instruction for body life 101. And he says, love each other, let peace rule in your hearts, let the word dwell within you, and let Christ be the basis for your life. So let's first of all, let's look at the first command of Paul, the first instruction. And he says, love each other in verses 12 through 14. He says, first of all, he says, if you've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another as forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should do. So he says, first of all, put on. Now, Paul has been giving this this picture. If you remember from the last time we met, he talked about putting off. 
Sorry, so he's talking, talking, about, he's talking about clothes. And so he's drawing a picture of we're, we're putting off the old actions. And he's doing it in an easy picture that people of any time can clearly understand. It's about clothes. You're, you're taking off that old man, that old life, that old relationships, those, those old actions. Right? You're a new creation in Christ. And now he's saying, look, put on. Put on that new man. Put on those new actions, those virtues, those graces in your life that should characterize your new identity. It's interesting here. It's, a, it's an aorist imperative, and so it's an it's a urgent necessity so that you become in experience what you are in fact. So we are saints. We are believers. We are chosen in Christ. We are a new creation in Christ, and now Make that effective. In other words, make it evident in your life that you are those things. So once we are saved, there is a synergy between us and the Lord in regards to salvation. We're to to work. We're We're to obey. We're to submit to Christ. And so Paul says, look, put on those things. Clothe yourself in these virtues. And he gives a list of virtues, and these virtues are, are important because they're, they're how to relate to one another in the body of Christ. And he says, look, the first virtue is, he says, put on a heart of compassion. Now, this is a, literally in the, in the um, King James, it says, bowels of mercy. Because in those days, they looked at the heart. They wouldn't say, here's my heart, like you put your hand over your heart. They would look at the heart as the bowels, because you think about it. When you feel, feel fear or anxiety, what is it that we, we even say, oh, my, my, stomach's, my stomach's bothering, my stomach's tingling, right? And so the, the Greeks would say, well, that's the seat of emotions, the seat of will, the seat of volition. And so when you put on this heart, you're, it's, a, it's a motivating emotion in your life that, that where you have sympathy and empathy for people. Right? You have pity for others. You want to give them mercy in times of distress, you know, it's hard at times to have a heart of compassion, right? It's not natural because we're, we're naturally self-centered, right? That's, that's where we are naturally. We still strive, we still, we still fight against those fleshly selfishness. But having a heart of compassion is it's putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, right? They're going through a tough time. Well, I can imagine myself going through that tough time, losing a loved one, financial distress, marital issues, I can imagine myself. It's having that compassion. One thing that's interesting about the Greeks and the Romans is if you were born with a deformity or you had a, a bad disease or you got old, right? We all get old. You were, you were basically discarded by society, right? Even in, even in the, the, the Jewish culture in some extent, if you were lame or you had some disease, basically you had to almost fend for yourselves, you would find people outside the city gates and there would be poor and diseased, right, deformed, mentally handicapped people. They would be outside the city gates and they would have nobody to help them. Well, Paul says, look, you need to have a heart of compassion, something that goes against the grain of our society that's not natural, that's produced by the grace of God in your life. Right? And then he says, so not only have a heart of compassion, he says have kindness, Kindness is goodness, it's generosity, it's, it's thinking of someone as more important than yourself. Right? Your, your neighbor's good is just important to you as your own good. Right? Think about that for a second. That you're, you, you look at somebody and you prefer them above your own self. That's hard. Right? If you're in a marriage, to prefer your wife's preference above your own, to, to prefer your husband. Right? You go give the back and forth. That's a kindness. Right? It's, a, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's manifested outwardly. Maybe a bit of a smile, a kind word. Maybe it's an invitation to lunch. Maybe it's an offer to help. I had a truck for a long time, a Nissan pickup truck, as we call them in the States. And you know one thing about having a pickup truck, everybody calls you and wants you to help them move, right? Which, you know, I, I did that gladly. If God's going to provide me a vehicle, you know, in His graciousness, then I'm going to show kindness to others by helping them move. Um, you know, those, those love seats that have pet hair on it and those stained mattresses and, you know, all those things, I'd be willing to help. Uh, but that's kindness. And then we have humility. 
You know, humility is the voluntary submission. It's a voluntary uh, submission of your own self. It's a lowliness of mind. It's the, it's the opposite of arrogance and self-love. You know, what, you know what really what the poison of so many of our relationships are? Self-love. Right? We love ourselves. Right? We don't show kindness and compassion. You know, the Greeks didn't even have a word for humility. They, they looked at a person of humility as absolutely worthless. The, the Greeks and the Romans elevated pride. They said, you should be proud of your accomplishments. You should be proud of the things that you've done and who you are and your position in society. They said those, those poor, worthless people are the humble ones. That's that Jesus' teaching, and this teaching here echoes what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, is, is the opposite of what culture says you should be. So much humility and humility in our, in, our, in our relationships in the body. The Greeks despised it. When you have gentleness, gentleness is a, is a restrained patience that doesn't retaliate when somebody wrongs you, right? It's a, it's a meekness. A meekness is power under control. It doesn't retaliate. When you're in the, we're in the body of your Christ and we're in our relationships here in the body and somebody does something against you, somebody sins against you, and they will, you don't retaliate. Because guess what? You have that humility to know, ah, I've sinned against them. Right? That's the thing that's consistent with all of us is that we sin against others and they sin against us. So when you, a true humility is understanding that. And it's treating others with compassion and kindness and, and meekness, knowing that, you know what? If they've sinned against me, I'm going to restrain from retaliating. One, because it's the right thing to do. And two, because I've sinned against plenty of other people. And I will sin against other people. Because we still all struggle with those sinful impulses. And then he says, have patience. Long-suffering. I, I love that word. I think it's, it literally in the Greek means long-suffering. Macrothumia. It means, it means to suffer a long time with somebody. Suffer when somebody is irritable, right? Without you returning that irritability and that anger, when people act foolish and unteachable and ungracious and harsh. Those of you that are married know that patience is, is key, right? You, my wife gets to see me in the morning when I wake up and I haven't had a cup of coffee and I'm, what, I'm irritable. Or haven't eaten anything in the mornings, and she's like, you need to eat something. And you're kind of snippy with the kids. Like, you're right, I need to eat something. Right? That's the long-suffering, that's the patience. Right? Or it's the, it's the long-suffering that we have with, when maybe there's, there's people in the body that we just don't click with. Right? We, we don't always click. And I say click in the sense that you know, their personalities maybe don't line up with our own, and their likes don't line up with our likes. But we still long suffer. We still be patient with them. I can tell you over the years that there's been guys that I, I've worked with to disciple and, and help. And, and then, you know, they, they tell me things that they've done or they say, I'm going to make this decision. And you just kind of shake your head and you're like, oh, you know, have I been with you so long that you still don't understand? You know, I feel like quoting Jesus to them. But, you know, it's, it's foolish decisions, right? But guess what? They're growing. They're growing in grace, and we long suffer with them. And so th- this is what Paul wants you as the body, and he wants these believers to put on in how they treat and how you treat other people. He said, put this on. These virtues, these, these graces should be characteristic of your life. And he tells us there's a basis for this. He says in verse 12, if, if you've been chosen of God, holy and beloved. You're, you're chosen. You're, you're the called out ones. You're the ones that He has chosen to place His grace upon. You're holy. You're, you're set apart. You're different from the common and the profane. And you're set apart to use for God. It's like the temple utensils. They were, they were washed and they were cleaned and then they were, they were consecrated and they were set apart as holy for use in the temple for the service of God. You are holy. In fact, the word for saints means holy ones. Paul says in Colossians 1, when he talks to these believers, he says that they are saints. You are saints. You're the holy ones. You're set apart. You're to be different. You're, to be, you're separate from this world. You're to act different. You're to be useful to God. No longer for your own desires. And then he says, and I love this, he says, you're beloved. 
we have the love of God poured out upon us. We, we were loved by God enough that He died for our sins, and now you are the special objects of God's love. So when you think about motivating factors of, of why I should treat others with these graces, why I should put on all right, these, these, uh, these virtues, why I've been chosen by God, I'm a holy saint, and I'm loved by God, and I should treat others the way God has treated me. So I was watching an American uh, gridiron game, and I saw this advertisement, this uh, advertisement, advertisement, excuse me, for, uh, for a truck. Miss Sharon likes that. For this, uh, this big Ford pickup truck, right? And I started watching it, and I started thinking, and um, you watch these commercials, and they emphasize this truck, and they show it going through the mud, and it's pulling like, you know, a large building behind it. You know, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But they start talking about the like, towing capacity, and they start talking about the, uh, the gas mileage. They start talking about um, how, how it can have these great off-road capabilities, and, and you're just mesmerized, and you're like, wow, I could picture myself in this truck. And then at the end, you know, it said, it said built Ford Tough. And they have the guy with the deep announcer voice, build Ford Tough. You know, and you're just like, yeah, I want one of those Ford Tough trucks, right? Well, if someone did a commercial of your life, would these virtues describe you, right? Would, would these graces describe you? Because that's what you have been made for. That truck was built for a specific purpose, fulfill specific goals, specific niche. Well, you have been raised up with Christ, you're a new creation in Christ, you're in Him, we're in one body, and these virtues are what you've been made for. You need to exhibit these things in your life that demonstrate that you truly are a Christian. You are chosen, you're holy, you're a saint, and you're being conformed to the image of Christ. So he says, look, not only are you to exhibit these graces... Let me show you how you demonstrate these graces very specifically. He says, verse 13, you're to bear with one another. You're to forgive one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. So you bear with one another. That's, first of all, how you demonstrate the graces, demonstrate these virtues. You, you endure with difficult people, and you make allowance for their faults. We're all growing, right? None of us are, are perfect there's no such thing as perfection. There's only been one man that's perfect, Jesus Christ. Like we can strive for excellence, and that's doing things to the best of our ability, to the glory of God. But there's no such thing as perfect. Right? For people who say they're, they're perfectionists, what they really are is they're very fearful. Because right? you're, if, you're, if you're a perfectionist, quote-unquote, then you want to try to control everything. Right? And the only reason you try to control everything is because you're fearful. So a controlling person is a fearful person. We can't be perfect this side of the cross. So we're all growing, and if we're all growing and we have that humility, then we understand that I'm growing and you're growing, and we're going to offend each other, right? It's going to happen, right? I'm going to offend some of you. I don't mean to, but I will, and I'll offend you either. Some, most of the time, it, in the way this offense happens for each one of us, it's usually sins of omission, right? Where we, we, we said we were going to do something and we didn't do it, or maybe we didn't follow through at a right moment, or, or maybe we weren't conscientious of somebody and we should have been. That, that happens in our life. And Paul said you demonstrate these graces by bearing with one another. I love what Paul says. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, in verse 12, he says, and we toil, we work with our own hands, and when we are reviled, we bless, and when we are persecuted, we endure. What's interesting about that particular verse is, is Paul was being reviled by the Corinthians themselves. In 2 Corinthians, he had to write a letter in a big section in 2 Corinthians. He had to defend his apostleship to these believers from the church he planted. You see, we respond with grace. We respond with love, as we'll see in just a moment. It's, and Paul says this is a constant necessity. And this is a present active. In other words, something you continually have to do. You have to strive for this. You have to bear with each other. And I love that one another. We were talking about this in our, in our uh, home group on Tuesday night, how there's, you know, the one another is described in the Bible, how we're to treat each other. But the one another's are reciprocal. It's not just, I'm going to bear with Peter. 
because he's a tough guy to bear with and he's rough. But guess what? Peter also bears with me. It's reciprocal. Because what? We sin against each other. And then Paul says, look, we not only bear with one another, we, we, what, we forgive one another. This is how we demonstrate these graces. We graciously pardon one another and we, we don't hold it against them. We choose not to dwell on it. Just like God has, what, forgiven us. Like this is the opposite of anger and bitterness when people sin against you. You choose to forgive them. It's, it's repeated. It's regular. It's a, it's a regular feature of your relationships that you treat others with forgiveness, right? And one thing about this, when you think about forgiveness, we hear this false term. And I say this is false because it's not biblical. We say people, people will say, and I've heard even people say to me that, you know, I have to forgive myself first before I forgive others. Forgiveness, you can't forgive yourself. Forgiveness is something granted to you by others. We are forgiven from, for our sins, or from our sins, by God, and forgiven from our sins by others. We can't forgive ourselves. Because what it is, when you say, I want to forgive myself, it says, they're saying, basically, I want to assuage the guilt that I'm under, I'm feeling. Right? You, can't, you can't do anything about that guilt because you're guilty. Right? You need judicial forgiveness by God, and you need to ask others' forgiveness for the guilt that you've incurred. If you're guilt, you've, you've broken what? You've broken God's law. You've sinned against someone. Right? So, you, so you just understand, you can't forgive yourself. You ask God for forgiveness, and you ask others for forgiveness. Right? If you want to you assuage that guilt, you want to assuage that inadequacy in your heart, then you ask God for forgiveness. You ask that person for forgiveness. You go to God in humility and ask Him for help not to do those things again. So Paul says, look, if you have a complaint, I love that. It's like, if you have a complaint, and in the Greek, it's like, if you will, you maybe will have a complaint, but you probably will have a complaint. The Greek, there's different words for if. But he's basically saying, look, you're going to have a complaint. We're all going to have complaints. Right? But rather than continue to complain, what do we do? We forgive. And the thing about forgiveness, and this is why it's hard, is it's, it's letting it go and it's not bringing it up. It's like, oh, this person treated me so and such and such, and they've asked for forgiveness and you granted it, but then when you're home with your wife or you're home with your husband, you keep bringing it up. Oh, I can't believe they did that. Oh, they, they, they just treated me such poorly. Or they did this and, and they did this. Right? If you've forgiven them, then what are you doing? You're putting it aside and you're choosing not to remember it anymore. Marriage. You want to have a long-lasting, successful, godly marriage? Forgiveness. It's the gospel, right, in our lives. Right? Beth and I, we have to forgive each other all the time. We have to ask each other for forgiveness. Show that humility. It even goes with our kids. As parents, you want to not exasperate your kids, or you, you want to exasperate your kids, just turn it over, then do wrong and, and don't ever ask them for forgiveness. Don't ever, don't, ever, don't ever admit you have done anything wrong. I want my kids to understand that, yeah, mom and dad have loved them. We, we are wise, and we are trying to live our lives according to the Scriptures, but there are times when we may speak to them harshly. There are times when, when we will sin against them and we need to ask their forgiveness. We want to demonstrate the gospel in our own lives and have them understand that they need to ask forgiveness from others because we all sin against each other. So forgiving one another. And he says, look, because you've been forgiven, because the Lord forgave you in verse 13, that's why you should do it. Because the forgiveness always begins vertically. Right? We've been forgiven by God through Jesus Christ. That, that forgiveness removes our guilt right? caused by our sin. Their repentance and faith brings an inward, inward renewal by God to new life. That forgiveness. Jesus says to, in fact, I'm going to flip over. Matthew 18. When you think about Matthew 18, we, we think about um, what Jesus says to Peter. Peter asked Jesus in Matthew 18, verse 21, he says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often, shall I, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but seventy times seven. So the Jewish, the Jewish Pharisees said that if you forgive your brother three times, you're good. That's, that's enough. Forgive him three times, 
So Peter's thinking, you know, Peter's mind, he's thinking, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to beat that. And Jesus will appreciate what I'm saying. He said, well, should, should we forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus, Jesus says something that stunned him. And he said, no, I, I say 70 times seven. It doesn't mean you have to count out 490 times. The emphasis is that infinite number of times you are to forgive if someone asks you for forgiveness. You're to forgive your brother or sister if they sin against you. That's the heart we should have towards others. Forgiveness of them. I have this this little cartoon, and it's kind of funny. It's of that same situation, and it has Peter and the disciples, and it shows Peter asking Jesus that question, and and Jesus says, you know, seven times, seventy times seven, and in the back it has John, and he's got his hand on his head, and he says, "Oh, I didn't think we'd have to do any math because math is hard." So for all of you that don't like math, like me. You know, math is still easier than forgiveness. And here comes, and this is why I've, I've, I've titled this section or, or given this point, this title, Love Each Other, is because he comes down to verse 14. He says, the, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So you put on, you put on all these virtues, you put on these graces, and you're putting them on like clothes, and it's how you're treating other. And then he says, hey, put on love. Love is the cloak that covers them all. Right? Love is what holds them all together. It's the belt, the sash, the cloak that binds them together. Right? If you were to sum up this section, you could sum up and say, love each other. Right? If you love each other, you will be exhibiting these graces in each other's lives. Because right? love is, is, a, is a willful choice to serve others sacrificially. You're putting them before yourself. You know, and he says, look, it's the bond of unity. Love holds us together. You want to you see divisiveness in a church? And a church splits? You know, church splits? They all begin by what? A lack of love towards each other. A lack of forgiveness, a lack of bearing with each other, a lack of grace in each other's lives. But we love each other because love never fails. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. And this one's often read at weddings, and appropriately so. But one thing about the Corinthians is, in Corinthians, especially in chapter 13, is that Paul's writing this as a rebuke to the Corinthians. They were none of these qualities. And love is always demonstrated in action. You say you love somebody, then show it. And this is what Paul says. He says, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So he says, because this is, happens, excuse me, this particular chapter happens within a spiritual gift section. So he's basically saying, If I have the spiritual gift of tongues, and I could even speak of the tongues of angels, but I, got, and I don't have love, it means nothing. And he says in verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all the mysteries of, and have all knowledge, see, he's exaggerating. If I have all that and have all faith and I can even remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And he said, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I even surrender my body to be burned for Christ and I have love, love it means nothing. And then he says, and then he, then he gives, here's what love is and what these Corinthians were not. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own and is not provoked. It does not take account of a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things again. It believes all things it hopes all things and endures all things. Love never fails. That's what we're to exhibit one another, brothers and sisters. Love. Without love, the other graces will not work. Without love as the foundation, we will not be able to endure any kind of obstacles or circumstances. Not, you won't bear with your brother and sister and you won't forgive your brother and sister without love. Paul continues, he says, not only should you love each other, he said, peace should rule in your hearts. He says, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
And now it says the peace of Christ ruling in yours, so I'm plural, in which you all, y'all, southern you, you all, plural, were called. Right? This is the peace of God, a peace of Christ wrought within our hearts. It all begins, first of all, by the right relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. Because Colossians says we were an enmity, or we were, we were an enemy of God in our minds. We were hostile in our minds and in our deeds. But Christ has reconciled us. We're at peace with God. Right? The guilt has been removed. We've been declared righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're in a right relationship with Him. We have a new identity in the body of Christ. We're at peace. And the peace that we have with God, guess what? Brings a peace in our relationships. If you love somebody and you're, and you're exhibiting those, those virtues in your life and you're bearing with somebody and you're forgiving somebody, there's going to be peace within our relationships here in the body of Christ. You see, we want to not allow anything to disturb that peace. And it's interesting the word rule here. The rule means to, to hold sway, to be an umpire in your heart. So when you're getting ready to make a decision or, or you're getting ready to say something, you need to ask, first of all, is this, is this what I'm about to say or what I'm about to do? Is it consistent with the fact that I'm on Jesus' side? Right? If we've been brought together in peace, we're on Christ's side from now on. So if I'm getting ready to say something or do something, is it consistent with what Jesus would want me to say and do? But it also, will it leave you and the other person in a state of peace? There are plenty of things that we can say, right? The tongue is as wild as James said, right? It's like a horse without a bridle, a ship without a rudder. There's plenty of things that we could say to people. But is it necessary? Right? Is it necessary? And that's the thing. Will it leave us after the fact in a state of peace and will leave that person in a state of peace? Now, I'm not talking about speaking truth to people's lives. We do that in love, and that comes up a little later. We'll see that. But we do help people, either teaching and admonishing them. But, but there's plenty of things that we say that we don't have to say. Many things that we do, if we have that thought of, well, I want to make sure I maintain peace, then should I act that way or should I say that thing? Because we, we want to maintain that corporate peace. Right? We're not, it's not a license to sin. People, you, you've heard people say, well, I have peace about this decision and I'm going to do it. I'm like, oh, yeah, you have peace about that immorality? Well, what have you done? You, you've, you've seared your conscience. That's what you've done. You've ignored God's word. It's not a peace, right? You're just ignoring the, the guilt. You're ignoring the promptings of the Holy Spirit, and you're making unwise decisions, right? So it's not a license to sin because the Word of God reveals the will of God. We want to be consistent with the Word of God in our lives, but it has to do with the peace among each other as a corporate body and how we treat each other. And he says, you're, you've been called into one body. God calls us all as Christians to have peace with Him and to have peace with each other. I'll put it this way. Should the foot fight with the leg? Should the hand fight with the arm? Right? Should the parts of the body fight with each other? No. It takes all the body working together to what? To accomplish any goal. Right? So he says, look, and he la- I love this last part. He says, verse... verse uh, Verse 15, he just kind of throws it in and he says, and be thankful, right? Because our thankfulness colors that peace. When you think about thankfulness in, in the Psalms, when you read about thankfulness in the Psalms, and I love reading the Psalms, the Psalms, what it is when you're thankful, David or, or the other authors of the Psalms, they are publicly praising God for what he's done. They're praising God in the assembly. So when you're giving thanks, it's one thing to say, well, Lord, I have this gratefulness in my heart, and you should. But to truly be thankful is we're, we're, we're telling others of what God has done in our lives. We're telling others uh, of, of the wonderful ways He's answered our prayers or how He's provided for us, how He loves us, and that's demonstrated. Right? That's thankfulness. And when, you're, when you have this thankfulness in your heart and you're telling others about what God has done, it's kind of hard to get in arguments. 
When you're talking about, hey, this is how I'm thankful. I'm thankful what God has done. I'm thankful that God has brought you in my life. It's hard to, 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 to break that peace and not all that peace to rule in the body when you're, when you're thankful for each other. Are you thankful for those around you? Right? You're going to spend eternity with each other, so you might as well. Are you thankful? I'm thankful for you guys. Right? You've accepted Beth and I with open arms. We found a home here in Oz, and we, we love you guys. We've gotten to know so many of you over the course of this last nine months. We look forward to getting to know you better and to get to know the rest of you that we haven't had a chance to spend some individual time with. But we love you guys. We're thankful for you. See, Peter throws that in. I'm sorry, Paul throws that in, and it's, it's, it's be, and be thankful. So we let the peace of God rule in our hearts. And my wife tells me at times that I have the gift of antagonism. <laughs> and sometimes I, I have to agree. It runs in my family to be a little bit argumentative. So, you know, that's something that I have to, I have to even ask, my own, ask myself and, and guard my heart and say, well, you know, is it going to bring peace in my family if I'm antagonistic? Is it bring peace in the body? You know, if, we're, if, we're, if what we're going to say and what we're going to do, does it bring peace? So he says, look, love each other. He says, let peace rule in your heart. Verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you in all wisdom and teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and being thankful in your heart to, the God, or to God. Excuse me. So what he's talking about here is the word of Christ. It's a, it's a synonym, just means the word of God. Right, so this is, this is Christ's Word, the Word of God in our midst. Remember, we're talking about corporately, the Word of God dwelling within us. Because it happens on an individual level, excuse me, yes. It happens as we study the Word of God, we ingest the Word of God, we memorize the Word of God, we meditate in the Word of God. But He wants the Word of God to dwell within them richly as a corporate body. The word richly is abundantly, lavishly, a prominent place. You know, that's what we are. We're a Bible-believing, a Bible-teaching church, right? We emphasize the Word of God in the preaching. We emphasize the Word of God in our prayers. We emphasize the Word of God in our songs. We emphasize the Word of God in the home groups. Because, no, it's the Word of God that transforms our hearts and minds and makes us like Christ. You see, the Word of God, I love this dwelling. Let the Word of God dwell or, or be at home. You know, sometimes we, we think about the Word of God and we almost treat our hearts when the Word of God, like our hearts are a caravan. And you get a caravan, you, you go off, and it's like your home for the weekend. You kind of live there, you have a good time, and you come back and you park it. And you don't touch it for a while. Well, we treat the Word of God like that. Rather than the Word of God dwelling, and the idea is to be at home it, rather than the Word of God be at home in our hearts, be at home among our, us as a corporate body, we, we can so often treat it like, oh, well, you know what, it's time to read the Word of God. I've come to church. I'll go put my Bible on the, on the desk when I get home, and then I walk away, and then up, oh, there it is again the next Sunday morning. I pick it up. Because in order for the Word of God to dwell richly within us as a corporate body, it has to begin in your own individual lives. You see, the church is to be founded and focused on the Word of Christ it's to constantly dwell within us individually and as, as a body. It's the key to body life. The Word of God reveals God's nature, His works, His will, our sin, our unworthiness, our destiny. It's through the Word of Christ that we are, we are, we are transformed and have our minds transformed and our hearts encouraged. The Word of God strengthens our faith. And he says the Word of God, an evidence that the Word of God is, is within us as a body is that we are teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness to God. So we're, we're, we're teaching and admonishing one another. We're, we're all to be teachers in the sense that we should have the basic doctrines of the Christian faith down pat. You might not all be Sunday school teachers. You might not all be home group leaders or preachers, but you should have the basic knowledge that you can teach each other. Right? You're, you're, you're eating dinner with somebody. You invite them after the service. Some of you go out for lunch and you're all having conversations and, and somebody says something that you know is off the wall that doesn't make sense with Scripture. And you should be able to go, you know what, and do it in a nice, and this is the admonishing part too, do it in a nice way. You say, well, brother or sister, insert name here, you know, the Bible says this, and, and this is what Christ is trying to teach us. And you know what? You, you admonish them, you're gently correcting them. 
but you're also teaching them. And so that's, that's the Word of God permanently and, and indwelling us as a body and as individuals. Benji was teaching in home group Ephesians 5, and in Ephesians 5 verse 12, the writer of Hebrews is admonishing these believers. He says, look, you should all be teachers by now. Instead, I've got to go back and, and give you baby food. It doesn't mean they all should be teachers or preachers, but it means they should have the, the basic knowledge, basic understanding of the Christian faith. If you've been a Christian a while, it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of study to understand the basic truths. And then you have that reciprocal one another. And then he lists these interesting, these interesting things. He says in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you know that when we sing, it's not just us and God. I've heard that often, like it's just us and God. But when you sing, you are praising God individually, but we're praising God corporately. And in some way... This is what Paul is talking about here. In some way, you're teaching and you're, you're admonishing one another as you sing these songs. Right? The importance of corporate praise and worship. The, the psalms are, are the hymns or the music that you find in the, in the Old Testament. You've got the hymns are, are important in the sense that they are, they are praise songs that must be to God. Spiritual songs are they songs that emphasize personal testimony. So you have these three types of, of praise songs. And when we sing, and we're singing beside our brothers and sisters, and we're singing corporately, what are we doing? We're reinforcing the truths of the Word of God. And so we, we're to love each other. We're to let peace of God rule in our hearts. We're to let the Word of God dwell, dwell deeply within us as a body. And then the final thing is we should let Christ be the basis for all you do. Paul is just kind of, he's bringing this home, this last verse. He says, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through the Father. If you could sum up this whole section, everything that you do in your life, how you treat each other should be done in the name of Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, he's making that as broad as possible, broad enough to cover every possible scenario. And he said, anything you do, every moment of your life, you should do all in the name of Jesus. That's, let, that's Jesus being over every aspect of your life, being Lord. It's, it's remembering Him and dependence on Him. It, it's living our lives for His glory. When you put on the new man... You're putting on Christ. Right? You're to be like Christ. You're to put on those graces. You're put on love, which binds it all together. You're to demonstrate that those graces and that love by bearing one another, forgiving one another, letting the peace of, of God dwell among us, rule in your heart, said the Word of God, dwell among us. And whatever we do and all that we do, the basis for that should be the glory of God. To praise Jesus' name. When you, when you praise someone's name, you're, you're praising their entire character. If I say that, oh, you know, uh, Josh did a great job, or, or Norton did a great job with Thanksgiving, I'm praising them, and I'm praising all aspects of the things that they did to, to help with Thanksgiving and how they serve the body. Right? When you praise Jesus, you're praising all aspects of His character and His nature and His work. You're giving Him the glory that He deserves. It's public Thanks. Again, at the very end, he says, giving thanks to, through him to God the Father. Right, we're giving him public praise. You know, one of the things when I, when I worked for Chick-fil-A, the, Chick-fil-A's mission statement was to glorify God in everything we do and to make a positive impact on everyone's life who comes into contact with Chick-fil-A. What a great company motto, to glorify God up front, unashamed, in everything we do. You know, that's, that's our motto as well, as believers. We do all that we do in everything we say, in all our relationships, for the name of Jesus Christ, so that He would be recognized and He would be honored. This is how we are to live, brothers and sisters, in the body of Christ. It's the foundation of love, and it's exhibited in the graces. We are to let peace rule in our hearts, 
We're to let the Word of God dwell within us, and we let Christ be the basis for all things that we do. You've been redeemed from your past futile way of life and thinking. You're in Christ. You have a new identity. Don't neglect the fellowship. The fellowship of the body is important and is necessary for your spiritual growth. I was coming across the internet the other day. Sometimes I just surf and just look and kind of find things that are, that are weird or some interesting things. And I was surfing and um, I came across this company based out of Melbourne. And I'm not telling you you need to go look them up. It doesn't matter. But they're called the, um, they have an interesting name. They're called the uh, Reputation Group. And I started thinking, it's like, that's an interesting name for a company. So I started digging in. But it comes out they're, they're a PR firm, a public relations firm. And so you want to, you come up with a product or your company's not getting enough visibility, well, they'll help you web-wise. And they have all these different strategies to help build your reputation in the community. Well, brothers and sisters, we don't, we don't need a PR company, right? We, we don't need someone or something to artificially boost our reputation, because you want a reputation of a, in the community, a good reputation, love each other. Right? Let the peace rule in, rule in your heart. Set the Word of God dwell richly, richly within you all and, and let everything you do be for the nature of Christ, for the name of Christ. How do you think the early church got their name? They were called Christians. Because they looked like little Christ running around. That's all the reputation we need. So this is Body Life 101. Do we love each other? Is there peace among us? Is the Word of God central and esteemed by us? And is God's glory the focus of our lives? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your salvation. Father, help us to live lives of godliness. Live lives with the priority of glorifying Your name. We give thanks for... All the things that you've done, all the blessings, we give thanks for your, your love, your salvation, your word. Father, help us to, to honor you in our relationships. Father, help there to be peace among us. Help us to demonstrate the grace of God in our, that, that, that you produce in our hearts. Help us to overflow in our relationships. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to demonstrate the truth of our salvation and how we live. Conform us to the image of your Son, that you may be honored and you may be glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.